0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: Long after you and I wrestle with the intellectual questions, the, the questions about knowledge, what is the right and God-honoring, righteous thing to do here and now? intellectual question, long before we ask that question and long after we've answered it, we still have to face the most foundational, most critical issue, the heart problem. It's where our biggest issue lies, inside of our hearts, not in our heads. We have to ask, do I really want to do the righteous and God-honoring thing? The struggle's in the will. It's a moral struggle, not primarily a knowledge based struggle. We know what is required of us the attitude of submission and humility before God and before His revelation, in the Bible. We know that. Maybe not thoroughly in all the details, but we know enough of it. Enough of it is clear to us. It's not in our head, it's in our heart. That's where the problem is. We have hearts in our fallen nature that are bent towards ourselves and against God. And if you're here this morning and you haven't yet come to Christ, you need to know that about yourself. You need to realize there's something inside of you that is bent against God. And you may have questions to ask. You may have things that you're wondering about. Answer them if, if you can. Find, find the answers to them. But long after you've found those answers, you're still going to be faced with the heart issue, the question of will at the bottom level that's the main problem and for those of us who are Christians it's the same problem for us you're not going to hear anything really new this morning intellectually new in fact probably most Sundays you don't hear anything that's entirely intellectually new and if you do one of the two of us has been reading from the wrong book it's not new intellectually it's new in that it has to be applied more deeply in your heart it's the same problem for us. It's a heart problem, not a head problem. May God give us all ears to hear this morning. This morning we're in the middle of John chapter 3. And this passage contains what is perhaps the most famous verse in all the Bible, John 3.16. But there's actually more to this passage than just that one verse. So we're going to look at it in its, in its context. We're still in the section of the new and better. We've been talking about that for a number of weeks now. John, the writer of this book, has been revealing Jesus to us, kind of like a, a multifaceted jewel, turning him just a little bit every week to show us something different about him. We see a new and better this, a new and better that. Jesus displayed as new and better in relation to something from the Old Testament. Last week, it was the new and better birth. Birth. In his discussion with Nicodemus, a Pharisee who came to see him, as is recorded in the beginning of chapter 3, in that discussion, Jesus taught in earnest that every single person, every single human being must be born again from above, born from God. It's critical or else we will not see the glorious and delightful kingdom reign of God over our lives or in the next world when it comes in its fullness. That was critical. That's so what he was talking about. And structurally, our text this morning is connected to that passage. It's an elaboration on it. I'm going to overlap a little bit to help us see some of that connection. Now, it's, it's likely that your Bible has verses 16 and following printed in red ink. And, of course, the red ink is not original. That's just the publisher's way of saying that he or she or they are convinced that Jesus is still speaking these words. For several different reasons, that's likely not the case. Uh, There's a couple of them, but most likely his conversation with Nicodemus ends in verse 15, and what follows is John's commenting on it. Just two reasons to think that. One, a language and one, a structure reason. The language reason, the phrase son of man is very, very, very frequently Jesus' description of himself. He chose that language for a variety of reasons, and so we see that in verses 13 and 14. That is surely Jesus speaking. However, Jesus does not commonly talk about his father with the kind of formal word God, like in verse 16. That sounds distant and more like John speaking. Additionally, structurally, the beginning of chapter 3 has dialogue followed by comment, I and many people think. And the end of chapter 3 has another dialogue followed by another comment. It seems like what John is doing here is showing some discussions and then elaborating on them. That's what we had this morning. It's John's dialogue following up on Jesus' conversation. Where he taught on the new and better birth, John is going to emphasize a few extra things, kind of expand it a little bit. He's going to talk more about the Father, more about Christ, and more about this idea of the necessity of belief. A major concern of John's. Now, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, most of what he was focusing on was this great need to be born again from above. Verses 3 and 5 and 7, he said it three times and he kept driving that home. you recall that we saw that that new birth is rooted in the Old Testament. Remember the passage in Ezekiel chapter 36? And there, when you look at that, you see God speaking to people who were lost in sin. God saying, not you, but I... I will, I will, I will. God's going to do something. He's going to pour out water and pour out His Spirit on people. Bring them to life and change them. It's God active. Salvation, new birth, is a work of God utterly through and through. It strips us of all of our human ability and rests it all in God's hands. Jesus was pressing that home and let it be heard loud and clear. Salvation is of the Lord. We are utterly dependent on God to save us. But There's something else that we must be careful not to miss. Careful. God saves. But the mysterious way in which the Spirit of God works on a person that he is saving, it's hard to trace out everything. Kind of like the wind moving. You can see what it does, but you can't tell where it comes from in the passage last week. So this mysterious way that God works on a person to save does not completely and entirely remove any human action from us. We never merit the salvation. We never do anything to earn it, anything to, to re- require God to give it to us, never join with it in, in partnership with God. It is utterly of God and yet we are not entirely passive. And that's the thing that John wants to emphasize Remember how we saw the outer nest last week around the conversation about the new birth? The outer nest was the importance of genuine belief. And John's going to land on that pretty heavy this morning. He's not changing Jesus' teaching. He's He's not changing that. Jesus taught about this too. For better or for worse, people encounter Jesus and his teaching, and they have choices that they make that, have consequences for which they are responsible. Remember Nicodemus? He's talking to him, and Nicodemus in his heart says, I hear what you're saying. No, uh-uh. And Jesus scolds him for it. You reject my testimony, Nicodemus. You made a choice, and you're responsible. And then in verses 14 and 15, at the end, positively speaking, he says, whoever believes has eternal life. A Human response with consequences of life And John is going to talk about belief. Belief, he's going to use that word four times in the passage this morning. He's going to elaborate on that outer nest. That's what he's going to bring to us. And that leads us to the main point for this morning's passage. This is the unique emphasis of John's commentary. Here, write this down if you want. By faith, by faith, that's the belief part, by faith, embrace the love of God in Christ. By faith, embrace the love of God in Christ. That's the main point. It's the heart of verse 16. I'm going to work towards that by building three steps, kind of like in a staircase that are connected to but extend on from one another. I'm going to work at that with three steps. I'm going to read the passage first, starting back in verse 14 to kind of catch some of the flow. And then I'm going to move directly into those three steps. So let me read John chapter 3. Verse 14 and following. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. First step. This is pretty straightforward, very simple. God loves the world. Simple sentence. God loves the world, right out of verse 16. But the strange thing is that verse 16 is so familiar to us that a lot of us, a lot of times, don't even think about it anymore. God loves the world. Love the world. We first saw this concept back in chapter 1. Do you remember that? Jesus, the Word, made the world came into the world, but the world rejected Him, did not know Him, did not commune with Him. The world is introduced there, and throughout the book of John we see what the world is. It's not a, a geographic entity like planet Earth or the universe. The world is the realm of fallen humanity. It's people in rebellion against God in sin. And the world is entirely bad. It's not a mix. It's pictured as entirely bad. Christ came to the world, but he is not of the world. And when he saves a person, the book of John is going to say that when he saves a person, he saves them out of the world. We still live here on the planet, but we're not in the world anymore. And we are not to go back into it and commune with the world and its ways. The world is entirely bad. Maybe you can think of the world as as fallen humanity or, or fallen people. From God's perspective, it is evil. That's what the world is. And God loves it. Isn't that amazing? This fallen, wicked, rebellious collection of evil that resists his authority and is constantly scheming up new and clever ways to fight against him. God loves it. That is amazing. That should grab you. Now, the love that God has for the world is not the dominant way that the Bible talks about God's love. It's not. God primarily, first and foremost, loves himself and son. He has to because he's no idolater. God has his loves in the proper order and he loves the most lovely thing first. And then he is partial towards his people. He loves his children, those who are his, more than anything else. That's clear. We need need to get that straight. So it's not the dominant concept that God loves the fallen world, but it is a true concept. It is genuine. He clearly loves the world, and he loves it greatly. God so loves the world. Taken as a whole, that construction is saying, that God greatly loves. It's talking about the extent of his love. He so greatly loved the world. Now he has a vast, wide, long, high and deep love for his children, but he has great love for the world. It's not like leftover love that's barely warmed up and we might describe as, well, at least he doesn't hate the world. No, it's not in any sense negative. It is a positive, great love that he has for the fallen world. He so loves it. He aches at its rebellion and sorrows at its resultant suffering and pain. He alone best knows what his perfect creation was like back in Eden, what it was supposed to be. What communion between His creatures and the Creator would have been like and was like. He knows each person in this fallen world by name. He knows the inner tracings of their heart. He knows the inner tracings of your heart. If you sit here this morning and you've not been born again yet from above, I hope you realize this. You sit face-to-face with the God who knows and understands you better than you know yourself. He sees you. Yes, He sees your sin, that's true. And ultimately, that's going to create a huge problem for you in relation to Him because He's more than love. He's also holy and just. But beyond your sin, He sees who you could be. He sees what He dreamed for you to be. And He's saddened that it's not the case. He watches as you struggle through life, attempting to live independent from Him, sometimes seeming to succeed, but eventually failing and suffering. Suffering in silence, perhaps. Turning to other temporary appeasements, cover over the hurt. Perhaps surrounding yourself with stone walls that seem secure today, but will fall down tomorrow, or next year, or in the end, fail to save. He sees that and he sorrowed because He loves you. Like on earth, a good father somehow separated from his children by some deceit or some evil scheme, he misses them and he hopes that while they're away they are nurtured and cared for and that they'll grow up and come to a knowledge of the truth and be restored to the relationship for which they were made. He pines away for that and hopes for it because he loves them. That's not an exact analogy because in that analogy the the children had nothing to do with the separation. That's not the case for us. But you get the point. His heart is engaged. It's not purely cold rationale looking at fallen people in judgment. It's not that. His genuine love and concern and he sorrows at the love not reciprocated and not fulfilled He loves the world as it is and he sees what it could be and how much more he could love it. I have to qualify that right now because of the world that we live in and the culture that we live in and some ideas that automatically seem to creep into our minds. That's to be misunderstood, we today are shackled with some serious misunderstanding of what love is like and what love should be. We're tempted to hear, God loves me and therefore God must do for me what I want in the way that I want it, in a way that is acceptable to me or is acceptable to my ancestors or is acceptable to the religion that I prefer. That's what we think love means. That's a very common thought today, but it's not what the Bible says. The very same Bible, on whose authority we find out that God loves us, the same Bible In fact, the very same paragraph must be allowed to also define how God loves. God sets up parameters. God loves in a particular way. We're going to come to that in a little bit. But understand, yes, He has an active, a powerful love that is genuine. And He loves in a way. You need to hear how God loves. Keep following along. We're going to come to that in a minute. But before we go there... Let me pause to address the majority of us here this morning who are Christians, who have already been brought into relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, do you share God's love for the world? Do you love the fallen world all around us like He loves it? Greatly? Passionately? Do you look around and see the fallen and broken and rebellious place and rebellious people that are all around us? and Does your heart ache for them? Or are you angry with them? Resentful towards them? Defensive perhaps in their presence? Or maybe just flat out indifferent? Which is it? I know that you know in your head you're supposed to love like God does, but in your heart, what's going on? Do you need to repent and ask God to change your heart, to line your heart up with His heart? You know, in in the Bible and in Christian jargon, non-Christians are given a whole bunch of names. And many of them are are technically accurate, but sound kind of harsh when we say them. I don't mean to be offensive. We don't mean to be offensive. But there are words in the Bible, words in our vocabulary, the unsaved, the lost those in rebellion the wicked pagans etc cetera, etc cetera. how about those he loves do you use that kind of title do you think along those lines those he loves picture in your mind bring someone into your mind someone in particular you know who's not a christian maybe someone who it's particularly hard to connect to this idea of love love from you or love from God maybe it's a co-worker who is particularly antagonistic or or family member who's not a believer a neighbor someone you see in the news how about a terrorist how about a leader of another religion a political activist in, in some cause or another Someone of another culture or another lifestyle or another sexual orientation. Someone who has committed certain sins, maybe even flaunts them all over the place. You got someone in particular like that in your mind? Maybe you know their name, maybe you just saw them in a coffee shop somewhere. Such were some of you. Thank God that God loves the fallen world because. We were the fallen world. And if he didn't love the fallen world, there'd be no church. There'd be no us. That's God's heart. God so loved the world. Yes, these people. I don't know who exactly you pictured in your mind, but let's just assume that yes, that person is walking contrary to the law of God. God knows that. They actually know that also. But what God also knows, and what they need to know, and what we need to know, is that God so loves them. So loves him that he's willing to do something about it. Do you love the fallen world like he does? Do you? If not, ask him to change your heart. Repent. Turn to the world. The last verse in this section talks about those who do the truth, who walk in the truth. It says they come to the light so that they can show their works to be done by God. Who are they showing? themselves, us, yes, God, yes, but also the world. And the idea is that we would show them these works done by God and they would think that's a good thing. They would find it attractive in some way and there's got to be some heart of care in that. Can't rub their noses in it, but how often do we do that? It's sad. The church does not love the world like the church Christ loves the world. Repent. Ask Him to give you that kind of compassion and concern and genuine, intense love. And if you get that love, it will lead to some action. It did for God. That's the second point. The second step in this passage naturally builds on the first. God loves the world, yes. Here's the second step. God loves the world by sending Christ. God loves the world by sending Christ, sending him into the world and then to the cross. We may be tempted to say some version of, as I mentioned earlier, if God loves me, he would do this or that or the other, and define that from our perspective. But no, God has defined it from his perspective. Yes, I love the world, and I love the world in this particular way. I send Christ. He loves the fallen and rebellious world and He so loved it that He gave His only Son. He gave Him. He sent Him, verse 17. It wasn't just a merely, merely sentimental or emotional love. It was an active love. He gave and He sent. But why did He send? And how did He give? Well, He sent Christ first as a light to illumine, And then he gave him as a sinless sacrifice to pay for sin. He sent him as a light to illumine and then gave him as a sacrifice. He saw that that was what was needed. And that's why he did it. He fashioned a plan of salvation that centers on killing his only son whom he loves. Love there. Praise this glorious God. He sent and He sacrificed His Son, the Word who in the beginning always just was, eternally existing, there in perfect fellowship with God. The Word who was, the Word who was with God, and the Word who was God. There in perfect fellowship, a happy, blessed community. That's what the Trinity was. The Trinity is. In need of nothing. Try to think inside of that perfect little realm. God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit communing with each other in joy and in delight. And out of love for the world, God the Father assigned to God the Son a daunting task which God the Son took up willingly. He came to the earth as an illumining light. We see that in verses 17 and 19 where the light is referred to. Connecting us back to chapter 1. The light comes in, born into this wicked world in a manger, in poverty and in squalor, to be honest. He's born in in a cattle stall. Comes in and, and as he lives his life, Everywhere that he lays his head, every place he puts his foot, everything he sets his hand to, everything he notices and speaks up and comments on, to the positive or the negative, everything that he does everywhere, and especially in the last three years of his ministry, in everything he is a light shining in God's perspective, what God would look like, what God would say, what God would think, what God would do, and in that shining of the light, the light switch goes on, and the darkness is revealed. Because by contrast, who we are, what we think, what we do is shown up. Christ living does that. He reveals the difference between God and us. He shows our sin. He shows the world who the world really is and what it's supposed to be, and the sin gap there that needs to be dealt with. He shows the world its need for a Savior. But that, was, that would not be enough. Just making us aware of the problem, if that was the extent of God's love, we'd still be lost. He did more than send him into the world as a light. He gave him as a sacrifice. The Word became flesh that he might become God's Lamb. The Lamb of God given as a sacrifice, slain to take away the sin of all sorts of people, the sin of the world, not just Jews, not just men, Not just mature adults, all people, all ethnicities, both genders, all ages, sin paid for in the Lamb. He did this, verse 16 says, because of his love. It's remarkable. Not because the world is so good, but because the world is so bad. He still died for it. The one whom he most loves, God the Son. God the Father sent down to the world out of glory, out of comfort, into the humble circumstances of a servant and humbled even to the point of death on a cross. Why did he do that? Why is this the only way that love can acceptably show itself? Why can't we choose other paths? Because of sin and because of its consequences. Sin, an offense against God, brings death, eternal death to us. That's what sin is. That's what sin brings to us. So sin must be paid for by an eternal means, either an eternity in hell or the death of an eternal being, God come in flesh. That's why God could only love in this particular way if he wanted to do us any good at all. This is why this is the only way to come to God through Christ and His cross. Through this sent Son, slain, through Him alone can sin be dealt with. There is no other way. If you come that way, you can have eternal life. The verb in verse 16, have eternal life. The tense there says we can have it now and on into eternity. Not just after you die, but now you can enter into this life with God. This is a great hope extended to us. Based on God's love for you. Verses 14 and 15. Christ crucified that those who believe may have eternal life. Again, verse 16, Christ given that those who believe may not perish but have eternal life. Same idea. Verse 17, the Son sent in order that, there's a language of purpose there, in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes is not condemned. Back to back to back to back. John can't say it enough different ways. He's trying to say in every verse something or another about Christ coming as a light and going to the cross as a sacrifice so that you might have life. And if you don't go through him, you don't have life. But you remain dead, condemned. You stand in condemnation, you perish. The repetition makes the point clear. God has acted to save, to give eternal life. And the opposite of that is to remain condemned. Stand in that. But but in Jesus, because of his love, God has made a way. The hymn says it's amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Think of those words. That is amazing love. That the God who made you would actually come and die for you though what you deserve is His judgment. He comes to rescue you out of that condemnation. Amazing love. We should praise Him. We should fall down and worship Him. The thing we need, He did. The thing we most need. Not just something that would be helpful to have. The thing we most need, He did. He dealt with our sin. God's love leading to the giving of His Son as a sacrifice. You can't take care of sin otherwise. That's going to require some response. I hope you see that. There's something marvelous there. I hope God so stirs in your heart that you see it and you recognize it. If you sit here today and you're not saved, it's going to require a response of you. We're coming to that. But again, I want to speak to most of us here who are Christians already and have already come. Apart from the fact that the Bible constantly preaches the gospel to you so that you will know it and will remember it and will revel in it and will love your God all the more, will remember who you were and what he's made you to be. Apart from that, there's something else that I want to touch on here. Certainly the central point here is God sending his son to save. But if we try to apply that, we're not God, we can't send our son. So how how do we do this? How do we apply this? Well, I want to keep these verses in focus and kind of step back from them for a second and look at a slightly larger context. There's another opportunity here to touch on one of John's themes. John is a very sophisticated writer, and he very often runs threads of themes through stories. We've talked about the remaining thread. He uses the word like 40 times throughout the book. Sometimes it pops to the surface like last week, about the genuine faith, and most time it's kind of under, this, under the radar. Same thing going on this morning. Here's another theme, the theme of being sent. The idea of sending is a significant theme in the book of John. You could call it the book of sent ones. He uses that word all the time to describe all sorts of different circumstances. John the Baptist was sent, here we see Jesus is sent. After the resurrection, the spirit will be sent, and Jesus is going to say to us, to his church, the Father sent me and now I send you. It's a book about being sent. God is on a mission, on a mission to deal with this lost world that he loves. And in doing that, he sends people, he sends us. We are sent ones. I have had opportunity to, sometime in my past, live overseas and do some missions work. And being there, this idea of being a sent one became really obvious I have been sent here, and for only one purpose, and it's not to enjoy the cuisine. There's something totally different that I am here for. It's really easy to see that when you move overseas, but it's kind of hard to see that sometimes when you stay in your own culture. But you realize that we have been sent to the world. We've been saved out of it, And sent to it. We live right here in America, in Utah, in Salt Lake, as sent ones. The Father sent Christ, and now Christ has sent you, Christian. We must become a people with an outward orientation. Individuals, families, church family, we must become that kind of a people. A people that thinks of ourselves as sent on mission. And it's not to enjoy the cuisine. It's sent on mission to be God's hands and feet in reaching a lost world that He loves. That's why He sent us. That's why we're still here. We must get there. And I know that you intellectually know that, but the problem's not here. The problem is here. Pray and ask God, God, where am I not in line with your sent one idea? Where am I not following this? Change my heart. Before you change my act. If you change your actions without your heart, the actions will fall away. Attend to your heart and ask, God, align my heart with yours. Oriented towards loving people around me who don't know you yet, but you're speaking to. We must become that kind of people if we want to be walking in line with God. May He change us. I hope He does that. Pray, pray, pray for eyes to see Him and how He sees the world. Third step. In this passage, it's the critical rubber meets the road sort of step. God loves and He loves in Christ And all that's true. That's all true whether a person ever hears it or not. God loves the fallen world. God has loved the fallen world by sending Christ. And if you never heard that, it'd still be true. But the reason that it's been written down here by John, he wrote this down because he wants to take that truth and create a response. He's after something here. That's why he wrote it down. It's related, to, it's related to the idea that he wants the response of belief. We've talked about that already. He follows up on this conversation with Nicodemus because he wants to create a response contrasting with Nicodemus's response. Here's the third step. God's love in Christ creates a response. Very simple. It does. It creates some sort of response John's after one but it always creates some sort of response. God's love in Christ, kind of like if you if you throw a rock into a puddle, it makes waves. It just does. But he's after some particular response. He's after the response of positive faith. He's going to talk about it here negatively and positively. First, negatively, the response that sometimes happens which John doesn't want, but he warns us against. Negatively speaking, here's the sad but true verdict, verse 19. Christ came into the world to save, not to judge, not to condemn. However, that coming to save does actually have an automatic judging effect. He didn't come deliberately to judge, he came to save. He's going to come back later to judge. But his coming to save does have a judging and condemning effect because here's how this works. The light shines into the dark. Remember the light switch going on that we talked about some weeks ago? And we skitter away from it. And when we do that, we condemn ourselves. Christ extends his hand and we reject it. And that rejection itself condemns us. We all, in our fallen natures, our heart problem, do not like the light. Do you see the verses saying that? It's very clear. 19 and 20. People love the darkness. People don't come into the light because they don't want to be exposed. Those verses are very clear. Verses 19 and 20. Make clear that you turn back and away from Christ Not out of misunderstanding, not from some head problem, people by and large, the vast majority of people, the world's natural response, if God does not work in them, is to turn away and reject the light because they do not like it, do not want to be exposed. And you need to understand that about yourself, to to think inside yourself and say, Am I hardening myself right now? Am I resistant right now to what that guy at me is saying? Observe that in yourself. That's your heart shrinking back from the light. That's how you respond in your own nature, naturally. You don't like the light going on because it exposes you. God comes near and says, Who you are right now and how you live right now is entirely unacceptable to me. Ooh, we don't like to hear that. That's not something that we human beings take well. Ever since the fall into sin in the garden, we people do not like standing buck naked in the broad daylight in public, physically speaking. We don't like that. We hide from that. And that is a mirror of what happens Spiritually. Same thing happens. We do not like standing spiritually buck naked in the broad daylight exposed. So we hide. And Christ is a light who exposes. He holds out his hand and says, I'll deal with you in grace and in love, but I also will expose you. And we say, no. I'm fine as I am. I'll come to you in the way that I please. God only loves in one way. He loves in Christ. Christ alone will deal with the sin problem. You can't turn away from that way and find any other way. God takes no pleasure in your death. The Bible says, I do not delight in the death of the wicked. But he does call non-Christians the wicked. From God's perspective. Words like the wicked, loving darkness. Don't think that we're talking about double murder torture, extortion, you know that's wickedness, that's the darkness, and I don't like that stuff. What are you talking about? That's not what the Bible means by darkness and wickedness and evil. From the Bible's perspective, anything that is not in submission to God, clinging to Him in faith, is sin and darkness and evil. The fallen human nature loves that. Watch that in yourself. (laughs) Fight against that. Cry out, God, I don't want to be like that. Change me. I need to be different. Have mercy on me. I see this happening in me and I can't get out from under it. Change me by grace. God help. Come to Him like that. Come in submission. It's a heart problem, not a head problem. Something is wrong in here. What John hopes to engender in you is not that response, but a positive response the second half of this don't push away his hand but instead embrace it when he holds it out cling to it again and again John repeats ties together a couple of phrases belief and salvation see that again and again it is possible for your reaction to the light to be different it's the last verse people who do the truth love the light and they come to it it's possible for that to be different. Now, he doesn't trace out theologically how all of that happens here. That's okay. He does some of that later in the book. We'll come to that. He doesn't trace out exactly how it changes, but the important point is that it can change, and what you are to do is traced out very clearly. Whoever believes has eternal life, verse 15. Whoever believes does not perish, but has eternal life, 16. And 18, whoever believes is not condemned. We saw that already. Again and again and again, belief, life, tied together. Belief, acceptance, no condemnation, tied together. The call to you is believe. Believe. Not like the crowds did in Jerusalem, fixed on some power, but passing away when things became hard. Not like Nicodemus did, who had come to him in his own righteousness, on his own terms. But then when Jesus made clear he need to be born again, no, no thanks. Not like that. In genuine faith that is now and in the future, on and on and on. Again, like we talked about last week, the tense of the words are not about believe in the past. It's about believe now and continually, on and on. Believe. Won't you believe? Won't you trust him? God loves the fallen world. And He loves the fallen world by sending Christ to deal with the fallen world's greatest problem, sin. And He has told you, if you believe, you will live now. You will have life now. Believe. By faith, embrace the love of God in Christ. By faith. Let me pray. God, I don't know where every single person here is this morning. You do. So speak the message to each heart that each heart needs to hear. Call people to you. Convict us of sin. Change us as is necessary. Lord, I pray particularly for the majority of us here this morning who are brothers and sisters in Christ already. I pray would you affect our hearts and how we look at the world around us. Cause this idea of being sent to root in us And to grow up into a great tree. God help us because it's so easy. We'll walk out of here and we'll forget it. God help us. Would you show us people. Open our eyes to see like you see. Would you be honored by what results from this morning. pray this in Christ's name. Amen.